This morning we will be in the First Kings 22, 1 through 28. First Kings 22, 1 through 28. So 1 Kings 22, 1 through 28. There's a companion passage to this if you'd like to look up that as well. 2 Chronicles 18, 1 through 27. The same passage is in both places this morning. But before we begin, we're going to talk about a little story. In 1820, Adoniram Judson, a missionary to the Burmese people, boarded a long, narrow riverboat to go up the Irrawaddy River with 10 oarsmen to take them upstream and one rudderman. Thank you, Mark. They began a long and dangerous journey from Rangoon to Amapura, the capital of Burma. Mike, take care of me. Thanks. I'm good. They went up the river through the highlands, past abandoned ancient cities, up through the Burmese jungle to the capital city, which was in the heart of the Burmese jungle. It was called the Golden City. It was the seat of the militant Buddhist emperor of that time. He was called the Golden Presence, and to enter into his place was to enter into the enter before the golden feet, and for him to look upon you was for his golden eye to look upon you. And all this talk, Adoniram had never seen this place, never seen this person, and wondered, you know, what is all this? Is this just a, a bunch of uh, bunk? Is this a bunch of mythology? What am I really going to see when I get to this place? And he was eventually granted audience to this emperor, and he was going to make his case for the, the preaching and teaching of Christianity in a radically non-Christian place. And when he was granted audience to this emperor, he was shocked to enter into a seemingly endless hallway with this exalted throne. And he said every square inch of this gigantic room was in fact covered in gold leaf. And he was on his knees before this emperor asking for permission to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in a completely Buddhist land. And the reason I share this story with you this morning is in his writings, he does the very best that he can to convey to readers now long ago about a, a place that was in a time long ago in a land that many of us will never visit and trying to help us understand what his experience was like to travel to and enter into a throne room of a great king of an emperor of this earth. And it's a shocking story. But it's nothing compared to what we're going to see this morning, which is a glimpse of the greatest throne room that has ever and will ever exist, which is the throne room of Almighty God, the throne room of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the most exalted King of Kings, the most glorious and the most mysterious of all, which is our God that we serve and that we worship. And so I'm going to do my best. It's going to take two weeks to get through this, I can tell you already, uh, to get through what we see here. Because we're given this mysterious picture as to what God is doing in his actions from heaven to those of us here on earth. And I can tell you there's going to be questions I can't answer for you. But I also tell you that the scripture is sufficient to give us what we need to understand. And so we're going to read this morning from 1 Kings 22, 1 through 12. So I'd ask you to stand, please, to honor the Lord as we read his word. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. 
But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, and we keep quiet, and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, and my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. And then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord whom we may inquire? Verse 8. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is Yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah. But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor, at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chinnah, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So at the beginning of our passage, we see three years of peace since the last time we encountered Ahab. Three years of peace between Israel and Syria. Syria is the northern country border of Israel. And there is a disputed territory between these two areas called Ramoth-Gilead. There's been plenty of disputed territories between kingdoms for all kinds of kingdoms down throughout history. People fighting over what they think is theirs. And Ahab seems to have a thing for wanting land and so he wants this land and he is going to have it and so he's been ruminating around clearly about how he can get a hold of it and he thinks Syria is too strong for me so if I go up and fight Syria I'm going to get beat so I need some help and so he invites Jehoshaphat the king of Judah the southern kingdom up into Israel and we know from second Chronicles 17 quite a few things about Jehoshaphat and just uh, in case you didn't know First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles are similar in some ways to the Gospels in that they are two different accounts of many of the same events, but from a little bit different perspective and with a little bit different commentary. But often, if you find something difficult to understand or mysterious in First Kings, you can read further about it in First or Second Chronicles. And so here in Second Chronicles 17, we learn more about Jehoshaphat. Who was this king, this king of Judah? He was said that the Lord was with him because he did not fear the Baals and did not seek after the Baals. And one of the quotes from 2 Chronicles 17 was that the heart of Jehoshaphat was courageous in the ways of the Lord. And he sent out teachers actually into Judah to teach the law of God to the people to remind them who God was and what was going on so that the people's hearts might return to the Lord. So this is who Jehoshaphat is, gives you a little bit of a reason for why he does what he does in the narrative that we read this morning. 
But Ahab persuades Jehoshaphat to join him in this war with Syria to reclaim this lost territory of Ramoth Gilead. But Jehoshaphat says, hey, you know what? Before we do this, we should inquire of the Lord. By the way, that's always good advice, okay? If you're getting ready to go do something huge, you should pray about it first and ask God, what does God think about this? Does God want me to do this or does God not want me to do this? And so Ahab consents and says, all right, you know, you're right. Let's do, let's do that. Let's, uh, let's see what the Lord has to say. And so they bring in 400 prophets. As we're going to see, the 400 prophets are 400 yes men. Because there are 400 yes men that have been around the court and they know exactly what the king wants. What does the king want? The king wants Ramoth Gilead back. That's what he wants. So everybody go out there and tell him that this is good. Like God wants this. God is all for this. And so of one accord, we see in verse 6 that they all go and tell the king this is a great idea. And the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead or not? Go up. For the Lord will give it to the king. It's interesting. We have 400 again. 450 prophets of Baal a few chapters ago. 400 prophets now. What are they trying to do here? And this is something I pointed out to you back then. I'm going to point out to you again. It's the idea that lots equals it must be right. If more people say it, if a lot of people say it, everybody in here agrees on it, it must be right, right? No, not necessarily. And we're going to get to that in a moment. So more does not equal right. It just equals more. Uh, and they could be very wrong. But they don't persuade who? Who's the one person in this audience that's not persuaded by these fellows? Jehoshaphat. He's the one person that's not persuaded by this. He's like, I don't know about this. Like, I don't, I don't have a sense that these people are telling the truth. They seem to be fake. They seem to be false. They seem to be telling this king what he wants to hear. And so he goes at it again and says, hey, is there not another prophet of the Lord that we can inquire of? Isn't there somebody around here somewhere that's going to give us a straight answer? And Ahab says, yes, yes, there is. There, there's one guy, which is interesting because Elijah still is around. Elijah's going to take a back seat for today. We're going to get back to him in the next two weeks. So he's still around, but there's other prophets of the Lord as well, which is always important to remember that sometimes there's more important figures that God uses at certain times, but there's also other very faithful people still out there. And he is one of these people that was a contemporary of Elijah. And Ahab knew about him. And he knew that he could inquire of him and that he would tell him the truth. And that he would actually tell him what God wanted him to hear. But he didn't want to hear it from him because he never says anything good about me. He never flatters me. He never gives me what I want from him. And so I hate him. And Jehoshaphat says, let's, let's talk to that guy. Let's, let's see what that guy has to say. And so they go and they summon him into the king. But in the meantime, we have this character named Zedekiah, who apparently is the leader or the head or the chief of these false priests, and he begins to up his game because he realizes that he has not persuaded the king, and he's actually getting ready to lose favor because they're bringing in somebody else because they don't believe he's telling the truth. And so in order to increase the, the strength or the magnitude of his argument, he goes and makes an illustration. He gets somebody to like make him some iron horns so he can run around with these horns and say, you're going to be like these iron horns are going to drive out what's in front of you and, uh, and gives an illustration so he can and be even more persuasive in what he has to say. Um, but verse 8, I'm sorry, lost my place here. Verse 13. 
So what we see in verse 13 is uh, the king's messenger as he brings in um, Micaiah. What does it say in verse 13? Which we haven't read, but I'm going to get on to that. And the messenger who went on to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them. Speak favorably. What is happening here? What is, what, so the king's messenger goes to get Micaiah, brings him in, says, before he sends him in, hey, listen up here, man. Like everybody agrees that we're supposed to do this. Don't mess this up, okay? Go in there and tell him something favorable so that we can get on with this. What's that called? That's called intimidation. Hey, listen up. Like there's going to be a problem here if you go in the opposite direction. How many of you have ever been in a situation like that? where you knew exactly what God would have you to do or say, and someone comes in and starts leaning on you, saying there's going to be consequences. If you, if you don't get in line and do what you're being told to do, even though you know per God's word, per morally, like what you should be doing, you'd be violating God's will if you didn't do this, and they're leaning hard on you. But what does he say in verse 14? It's interesting. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, I will speak. Get out of my face. Like, you're not going to tell me what you, I'm going to say or what I'm not going to say. I'm going to tell you what the Lord tells me to say. That's what I'm going to say. That's what you called for me to say, and that's what I'm going to say. He is a bold person. Everywhere in the Bible that we see people that are filled with God's Spirit, they are always bold. They are always ready and willing to say what God has declared for them to say, and they will say it regardless of what the consequences are, because they fear God and not what? They don't fear man. They fear God. They're not trying to win favor with this ungodly king. He is going to say what God has told him to say. And so it is with every faithful minister and every faithful Christian that we must say what we know to be true that the Lord has for us to say. And so verses 15 and 16, we see this. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go up to Ramoth Gilead or to battle or shall we refrain? And this is interesting because it catches us off guard, but here's, we'll, we'll talk about this. He answers him, go up and triumph for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. So all we have here is the words on the page, which seems to be unfaithful to exactly what he said before. But what we don't have here, and what I talk about a lot when I do new marriage counseling with people, is nonverbal communication. There's a lot in nonverbal communication. You can text the very same thing that you say face-to-face -face to your spouse and have a completely different outcome because there's no nonverbal in, uh, in the texting part of it. And so all we have is text here. But what we see clearly is that however he said this, King Ahab immediately responds to him, you listen tell me the truth so something about what he said there has either sarcasm or a mocking nature to it and it's meant to bring an effect out of ahab it's a you know oh yeah you you go on up go on up god's gonna give it right into your hand i'm sure and he's like i told you tell me the truth and what does he say next he says how many times do i have to tell you to tell me the truth and then he gets into it the truth of what the Lord has brought him to say to this man. And so, as I've mentioned it before, it's important. He is one man. He's getting ready to get in here for verses 18 through 23 and tell 
Ahab exactly what God has revealed to him in a vision. And it's going to be a, a very negative thing that Ahab is going to have a response to. But it's one man against 400 people declaring what God would have for him to say. And don't think that's a small thing. That's, it's in the court we saw here in verses 10 uh, through 11 about how they are sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes, trying to show a show of power before the people that are here, that we are kings, and you've got all these prophets out here, and you've got this one guy standing in front of him. But I want to remind you, as I've reminded you before, that one person with God's truth is always going to win the day. Over a thousand, over ten thousand, over a million lying people, God's truth will always stand. God's truth cannot be bound, and God's truth will not be overturned, because God's truth is like light in darkness. And so I don't know how many of you have ever been in a cave, but a cave is true darkness. I'm not talking about Luray Caverns with the little green lights. I'm talking about a real cave when you get in there, and all the lights are turned out, and it is true blindness. You cannot see anything at all. But when you turn even the smallest light on, the smallest light overcomes the darkness. And it begins to shine through the darkness. And if you increase the light, you begin to see everything that is in that cavern. And so it is with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it is a light that cannot be overcome. And it shines into the darkness of the world. And when we speak the truth of God, it cuts through the darkness and the wickedness of this world. And just like what we're going to see is happening in this passage, there is a spirit of deception that has come upon this entire court to where they are all deceived, except for one man that comes in with God's truth. There seems to be a tremendous spirit of deception that has settled on our country in this time. It is shocking to me the things that even 10 years ago people would think was absolutely ludicrous. And now they not only believe, but argue for. And you think, how have we gotten here in such a short period of time? What has happened to people that have lived for 40, 50 years and they're now convinced of radically different things about the nature of God and the moral things that God has caused us to do in such a short period of time? And I have a hard time believing that it is anything other than a spirit of deception that seems to be descending on our country. And there's much that could be said about that, and we're going to talk about that more. But there is always, always, always people that the Lord causes to be light in darkness and to speak the truth. And so a big part of what we're talking about here today is whether or not we are going to listen to those people or not listen to those people, which is what happens in this passage. And so I'm going to read for us verses uh, 17 through 23. So Micaiah says, because he interrupts, the, the king comes back to him and says, how many times am I going to have you say, and he's, I've, got, I've got more to say, and here's what I've got to say. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master, let each return to his own place. So you're all going to be scattered and you're going to die on the hills if you go out and do this. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but only evil? In verse 19, Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab 
that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead. And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all the prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets. And the Lord has declared disaster upon you. That's a heavy word. And there's a lot going on there. But it's a picture, a scene of the throne room of God where heavenly things are happening. It's a little window. And I, I remind you, the same thing is repeated in Second Chronicles 18, 18 through 22. And there's a host of heaven. There's a lot of spiritual stuff going on, like any kingdom or any courtroom or any throne room. But the Lord God calls out, who will entice Ahab to fall at Ramoth Gilead? He's done with Saul. Saul's time is up. It's over. And according to the sovereign working of God, he is going to cause his downfall. And there's chatter. It says that people, there's kind of this going back and forth as to what is going to happen here. And then a spirit comes forward. As we're going to see, an evil, deceiving spirit, which is very interesting. I don't know what you think about the throne room of God, but there's often recorded in the Bible interchanges between good and evil and happening in the throne room of God, which is very strange. It's very different than what we would think in our own hearts. If I was to create the throne room of God in my own mind. He says, I will deceive Ahab by misguiding the prophetic leaders, by deceiving them. It's told by the Lord to go and to do what he says he will do. And so this brings tremendous issues up. And the biggest issue here is two, two things, really. Is God sovereign? Is he actually causing things to happen? And then second, is God the author of evil? Because there's two things happening. It looks like God is causing, he's the one that is doing the evil or commissioning the evil. And people struggle with this. I struggle with this. And so what I'm going to tell you that is that there are four things that we're going to talk about in this passage today. And I'm not going to be able to get to all of them because we're going to take our time with this to answer these things as well as possible. Um, we're going to get to the second, the last two, three and four next week. We're going to get to one and two this week. One and two is this. We interpret the less clear passages of the Old Testament by the more clear passages of the New Testament. Second, that God speaks truth and Satan speaks lies. Third is that God does not tempt us to sin, which we'll talk about next week. And when temptation comes, God always supplies a way of escape, number four, which we will also talk about next week. But let's begin with this, because we have a mysterious passage here in the Old Testament that we're going to need help from the clarity of the New Testament to begin to understand. So our first point in Bible interpretation is that we always interpret less clear Old Testament passages by more clear New Testament passages. And this is called the progressive revelation of God. 
throughout the ages, from the time of creation, which Jim read to us this morning, uh, to the end of the Bible, with the revelation of John, uh, the revelation given by God to John, we have God revealing himself. We look at the early chapters of the Bible, the early books of the Bible, we have people walking with the Lord. We look at Adam and Eve and Noah and Enoch, and it often talks about them walking with the Lord, which gives us a very clear, like a very personal sense of people being near to God. There were no Ten Commandments, there was no written scripture, there was no written word of God, but the Lord God was very personally present with these people to make himself clearly known to them. And we know from what we read there that these people understood who God was, and they understood what his will was, and Noah, as a preacher of righteousness, was making it known to other people. And so God was disclosing himself. With Noah, he enters into a covenant with Noah, with promises. And those covenants continue on as we go into Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There are other covenants and other promises and other ways in which God reveals himself and and gives glimpses to the future as to what he is going to do with a chosen people. And then Moses enters into the situation, and they had this, this great scene on Mount Sinai where God meets Moses and inscribes with his own hand into stone the Ten Commandments of the Lord. And then there's the tabernacle and the, the institution of a sacrificial system that the people might offer and get a forward-looking glimpse of what Christ is going to do by being a substitution for us. And then we enter into the time of the prophets and the kings after that, where we have what we have here, prophets speaking to the nation of Israel, telling them clearly, thus says the Lord, a clear word from the Lord. And these words are being written down, and we are creating a body of scripture, the Old Testament, a written word that's put into scrolls and held that the people might not lose track of the words of the Lord that have been spoken. But always they are looking forward to the Messiah, to Jesus himself to come. And so we see in Hebrews chapter 1, it talks about Jesus. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed, the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So God has spoken in many times, in many different ways, he has revealed himself. But then he comes down to Jesus, the perfect incarnation of God, the, the revelation of God himself, incarnate amongst us, preaching and teaching. And we think, man, how could it get any better than this? How could there be anything better than Jesus right with us? Well, it may seem that way for us now, but we weren't out there at the Sermon on the Mount amongst 10,000 people. We were like, man, if he could only speak up, maybe I could. Did anybody hear what he just said? Like, I just couldn't hear. Well, I think he said this. Well, I don't know. And it kind of went around because Jesus was a man. He was one, one voice speaking, and people had to wait in line literally to see him. And they would wait all, all night, but eventually, I guarantee you, there were some that gave up. Like, man, I've been here for a long time. I just... I would really like to talk to Jesus, but I'm just not going to make it through this line, so I'll just have to come back later. And there were people that never got to see him because of that. And so he said, you know what? There's something even better than me coming next, which is the Holy Spirit of God. 
And the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out into your hearts individually as you believe and trust in me that the Spirit of God might indwell your heart and by the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit, you might have a nearness to God that you never had before and an empowering of the Lord to understand the will of God in a way that you never had before. And that is the age that we live in. And so the point of taking these things is to talk about the progressive revelation of God over time and that we are receiving over time more and more of an understanding of who God is and what his works are and what his saving work is and more and more of the near presence of God until the time that we live in. We have understanding more of his actions and his purposes and we live in really a privileged place in history, that we have all of these things that were unknown beforehand, the people that desired to know them, and they are now made known to us. And so in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, just the next chapter, it speaks to this again. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Verse 2, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, so what they said was true, And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So right in the middle of that, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And so it is right. There is a great salvation that is put out before us. And there are answers that are there if we will go and look and seek. And so when we look at mysterious things in the Old Testament, we must look at God, how he continues to reveal himself because God has not changed. God does not change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the actions of God in the past are unchanged in the actions of God in the present and the future. It is one plan unfolding. That's important to understand when looking at this passage. Next is that God speaks truth and Satan speaks lies. We cannot get confused on this in this passage. Who is doing the deceiving in 1 Kings 22? It is very important that we look at the New Testament to clear verses, verses that talk about truth and lies. Hebrews 6.18, it is impossible for God to lie. Titus 1.2, God who never lies. Or if we go to John 14.6, John 17.17, it's the opposite of this. Not only does God not lie, but he always speaks the truth. It's the positive of the negative. One is negative, so God is not just absent and neutral, but he is always speaking the truth. He says, I am the way, the truth. And the life, that Jesus himself is the truth. He prays in his great high priestly prayer before he goes to the cross, sanctify or set apart the church by the truth, that his word is truth. So when God speaks, he always speaks the truth and he never lies. When we flip it around though, the adversary that we have, our great enemy, Satan, He always lies, and he never speaks the truth. There's not a mixture in these two. One always speaks the truth, and one always lies. In John 8, 44, we have a powerful condemnation by Jesus of the devil. He says he is a murderer. There is no truth in him. 
And Jesus says, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so his character is corrupt and evil, and he is always seeking to lie and always seeking to deceive. And as we see in this passage, always willing to raise a hand and come forward, I would be glad to deceive those people as much as you will allow me to do that. Because Jesus in 8 John 8.45, right after that, he says, I tell you the truth, but you do not believe me. And this is going to come back into this passage as to the truth being spoken, but people not believing the truth. One person always lying, the other person always speaking the truth. And we must remain clear in our thinking that God is the truth, and he speaks truth, and he never lies. But Satan, our adversary, is a liar. His character is to lie, and he always lies, and always is deceiving, and always seeking to destroy us, even unto death, both physical and spiritual death. So concerning Micaiah's vision, the New Testament clarifies for us some of these things. Because we have an interchange here between God and the devil, and we understand a little bit more about who those two characters are and what their actions are in the world. We see in this throne room that God is in charge. He is the one speaking. He is the one calling. He is the one giving allowance for things to happen. It is not out of control, and it is not out of his hands. We see the devil as a deceiver who goes out and by his power of deception is able to deceive hundreds of people at one time into all coming into one accord to believe one lie. But what we also see is that he is not able to go beyond the allowance of God because he does not deceive everyone. When that messenger of the king says, hey, you better get in line and you better lie and you better say something that that the king's going to approve of, he says, I will not do what you tell me to do. He is strong by the Lord to say, I will do what God tells me to do, and I will speak the truth. And so the deception of Satan always has limits, and it is limited by the Lord God. Because as we're going to see next week, there is always someone speaking the truth. There is always someone speaking the word of God, whether we will listen to it or not. The Lord always supplies a way of escape for temptation. And so we will get into the other two next week. But what, I, what we begin to see here is the outfolding of God working out his sovereign will, but he is not the, detemp- the tempter. He is not the deceiver. If you have to come back next week, we'll talk about it a little bit more. But this is an unfolding of a very deep and important story and something that affects many people's hearts. Some people struggle with these things. And so I hope that you can come back and join us again next week. But what we're, we're going to do is, I don't want to take away from our time of the Lord's Supper. So please join with me in prayer this morning as we close this message. Lord Jesus, what a fascinating scripture this morning for us. We praise you that you are seated on your throne even today. That you are still the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that you are exalted above all the host of heaven. And that you have not changed. And that you look down upon us now and see what we are doing this morning. And you are the truth. And you have caused your truth to be preserved to this day in your scriptures. And you have given us the Holy Spirit that he might be near in the hearts of those who believe. That we might know that God has not forsaken us. And that we might be protected from deception and sin and evil and temptation. And that we might be able to walk in a true way of life. And we thank you for these things, Lord God. We pray that we would be students of your word 
that when we are concerned and are confused about the issues of our day, that we would open up the scriptures and that we would there find truth. And I pray, Father, that we would always understand that the ways of God are light and that we would look to those things and that we would not be stumbling in the darkness, but that we would be seeking out the truth and that it might guide each and every step of our way because your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.